Welcome to Midday Magazine for Wednesday, July 19th. I'm Hannah Floor with KFSK News. For decades, Petersburg's aptly named Tent City provided shelter for a rotating gast of transient workers and adventurers. Some of them stayed in Petersburg and made it their permanent home. A new exhibit at the Claussen Memorial Museum looks at the ways that the campground impacted both the economy and the character of the town. Here's the story. Sled dog Louie comes through the gate, ready to race around looping gravel trails. Nearby, another dog, Ozzy, nuzzles skunk cabbage. We're more than a mile and a half from downtown Petersburg at a fenced dog park run by Petersburg's Humane Association. Ozzy! Come on! But this place wasn't always a dog park. In the 80s and 90s, it was a campground known as Tent City. The economy of Petersburg has long relied on fish. But before fish processing plants had bunkhouses for their employees, cannery workers had a tough time finding lodging during the fishing season. In 1980, the city of Petersburg decided to address the housing problem by building 26 tent platforms, restrooms, and a cooking pavilion on a chunk of land between Sandy Beach and the airport. A month after the campground opened in the summer of 1981, it was full. Heidi Lee lived in a school bus just down the hill from Tent City. So many people came here from all over the world and had a big experience. The museum exhibit takes visitors on a tour through the 20-plus years of Tent City's existence. A blue tarp hangs from the ceiling, mimicking the shelters built on each tent platform. There are photos of campers, of course, but also the camp cat, named the mayor of Tent City. There's a bunch of silverware found under tent platforms when the campground was dismantled. Another common find earplugs. Don Perry managed the campground in the late 90s. There's somebody asleep, depending upon what their shift they're on, every minute of the day. There's people in there sleeping, because some work days, some work nights. The campground had its own culture, one that was a little more wild and woolly than that of Petersburg. Don Perry says that although not everyone at Tent City was wonderful, it was filled with all kinds. He loved the job of managing the campground. It was fun. And it's the people that made it fun. Wasn't me. It just wasn't me, but they made it fun. He tells a story about a man from New York who was a little out of his element. He came to Petersburg to work for PFI. The processing plant had donated a sleeping bag for him to use at the campground. And he says, what do I do with this? He said, do I lay on top of it? Do I lay under it? I says, well, you just unzip it and you crawl in it. And I unzipped it for him. He crawled in it. And it was amazing how many people out there that had never slept in a sleeping bag. The constant rain made tent city life soggy. Hours at the cannery were long. Those unwilling to hitchhike or pay cab fare into town often had to walk or bike to and from work in bad weather. In the late 90s, processing plants started to build bunkhouses for their employees. By the early 2000s, Tent City was no longer financially viable. And in 2003, the Petersburg City Council voted unanimously to close the campground. After lying vacant for nearly a decade, the borough voted to give the Petersburg Humane Association permission to use the land. Heidi Lee loves that the museum has an exhibit focusing on the campground. It was our our kind of more recent history of people moving to town 
and discovering this place and realizing, you know, what a gem it is. It's fun to see people fall in love with this place because it gives us new appreciation for it, you know. Outgoing museum director Cindy Lagadakis says the exhibit has helped her understand just how much Tent City was a part of life in Petersburg during the 80s and 90s. Everybody who comes in the door has a story of their own to tell, which is really kind of fun. <laughs> Some aspect of it that they know about or they experienced. And that's that's kind of what a museum is about. You know, it's to, to share information, to share history, to make you think, to kind of have something that you can relate to. Items continue to be added to the exhibit, which will be up through the end of summer. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. And those who would like to share photos or other relics from the Tent City days are encouraged to bring them to the museum. Staffing remains a huge problem for the Alaska Marine Highway System. That was the message from the new director, Craig Tornga, during a meeting last Friday with the Ferry System's statewide board. Crewing, that's our, our biggest uh, biggest pain we have right now. It's uh, just a daily challenge. Tornga says the crew shortage affects how many ferries can run this summer. Six of the system's nine ferries are operating. There is not enough crew to run the Kennecott, one of the state's largest ferries, and other ferries are at risk of getting tied up. The only reason we have six vessels uh, operating is the willingness of the crews to work over. We're at risk of shutting the hover down on uh, this next week just we can't get a uh, another licensed engineer on board. The Hubbard is a newly built day ferry that runs the Lynn Canal, connecting Skagway, Haines, and Juneau. It's running this week, despite Tornga's comments. The ferry system needs over 800 workers, both on and offshore, to run its fleet efficiently. Tornga says entry-level positions on the water are fully staffed, but they are short by nearly 60 higher-level positions that require licenses, like those that steer the boat in the wheelhouse and work in the engine rooms. Hiring new ferry workers is a complicated process and can take months. There is a shortage of marine workers worldwide. The demand is outpacing supply. But Alaska has its own specific problems, including short staffing on shore. Toringa says administrative vacancies are causing payroll issues for ferry workers every day. And that's leading to a bad reputation when recruiting new workers. Don't take the job with uh, the Alaska ferries who won't get paid. He says the state's Department of Transportation plans to assume the ferry system's payroll responsibilities, which will help. DOT spokesperson Sam Datsevich says the transfer has been going ongoing since early this year. He says that they are training in-house staff and plan to have the new payroll system up and running in the coming months. Shishaldan Volcano erupted a large cloud ash cloud yesterday morning in Unimac Island. The eruption has continued for hours, and the ash cloud is being pushed south by the wind over the Pacific Ocean. Nate Eckstein is a science and operations officer for the Anchorage Volcanic Ash Advisory Center. He says the ash cloud is not affecting a high-traffic area for local air travel. can fly north of the volcano and the island there if they need to get to Dutch or further west. The ash cloud is high enough to affect international travel, though. Eckstein says Trans-Pacific flights could be rerouted. I can't really speak to each operator's policies. Most of them don't like to fly over something that's somewhat uncertain. 
Alaska Volcano Observatory says ash clouds are hazardous to engines, especially jet engines, and could cause them to stop working in air. There are no reports of ashfall in the nearby communities of Falls Pass and Cold Bay, located over 20 miles away from the volcano. Matt Lowen with the Alaska Volca- Volcano Observatory says shipping boats under the cloud could see ashfall when traveling south to Unimac Island. And if they do, the observatory asks that people let them know as they'd like ash samples. Lowen says collecting ash from eruptions helps them record and research volcanic activity. One Kodiak resident died in a hit-and-run during this weekend's tsunami warning and evacuation. Brian Venois reports police have already contacted a suspect. Kodiak police have identified the pedestrian who died Saturday night as 45-year-old Vanessa Jean Amox. Friends on Facebook identified the victim of the hit-and-run by the name Vanessa Malutin McCormick. She was hit by a truck near downtown Kodiak within a half hour of the sirens going off. Police solicited the public's help to find the suspect that night. Lieutenant Francis De La Fuente is a public information officer for the Kodiak Police Department. He says witness accounts and private security cameras helped their search. We've uh, located the truck. Uh, Our patrol division and detective uh, was able to piece together the parts and was able to track the vehicle that same night. And um, we were able to communicate and make the interview already. De La Fuente thanked the public for their help so far. He says the investigation is ongoing and no one has yet been charged. De La Fuente says traffic was heavier than during previous emergency warnings, partly because more people were downtown. We had a lot of people walking, going up to the high school from downtown, and it was a Saturday. Uh, we have apartment complexes from the canneries and um, businesses downtown that we needed to evacuate. He says one big systemic difference this time was the text notifications from the National Weather Service that buzzed residents' phones before the sirens went off. The biggest difference for me personally was the notification from the state when we all have our phones, uh, have that obnoxious beep that uh, everybody hears to wake you up that there is a tsunami, then we followed up with the tsunami siren. The department recommends residents maintain emergency preparation kits to include two weeks' worth of supplies like clothes, water, and food to prepare for future tsunamis. Since Saturday, some people have left flowers near the accident site. A GoFundMe was also shared on social media to help Amox's family cover funeral expenses. In Kodiak, I'm Brian Venois. In a year with many concerns over salmon abundance in Alaska, the sake run at Readout Lake near Sitka could be record-breaking. Federal subsistence managers on July 7th doubled the traditional harvest limit in order to stem the tide of the massive return, which, if unchecked, could far exceed the carrying capacity of the lake. Robert Woolsey reports from Sitka. There have been reports of other sockeye runs around the state doing well this season, but Readout Lake is a different animal. The lake is fertilized every year by the U.S. Forest Service to support the wild run of sockeye. It's like fertilizing a garden and feeding the microorganisms that juvenile sockeye eat. That likely makes it an outlier compared to other runs, but no less of a mystery. Rob Cross manages subsistence on the Tongass National Forest. You know, it's possible that it's an anomaly because of that enhancement. Um, but, yeah, I, I really 
I, I don't have an easy explanation for it. Readout Lake is about a 15-mile skiff ride south of Sitka. Surrounded by towering mountains, it resembles an ocean fjord, which it may have been at one time. Its surface is only nine feet above sea level. Much of the lake is below sea level and is actually salt water capped by a lens of fresh water. Given its size, Readout Lake's sockeye run was not particularly strong. So in the mid-80s, the Forest Service stepped in. And that was because of concerns of low nutrient levels and that they were potentially, those low levels were potentially restricting juvenile sockeye salmon productivity. Managers now aim to have between seven and 25,000 fish return to the lake, primarily in July. This year, the first dozen reds came through the weir on June 15th, and they have not stopped. As of July 9th, 30,000 fish had entered the lake, already 5,000 fish more than ideal. At this rate, there's a possibility that escapement could hit an unprecedented high of 100,000. And that, although it sounds counterintuitive, Cross says is not a good thing. In this system, like many other systems, we see a point of diminishing returns. So um, past large run sizes, generally around 50,000 or more fish, have, have often resulted in a reduced return of the offspring of that spawning generation. And, um, and that's just due to carrying capacity factors within the system, like available spawning habitat or food availability for offspring. Sockeye swim up the falls in summertime past the subsistence dip nets and the sport flies and the resident brown bears constantly patrolling the weir and into the nine-mile-long lake. Spawning happens later in the fall, however, and that's where the bottleneck occurs. Most of these sockeye are crowding into the inlet stream at the eastern end of the lake, digging out reds or small depressions in the gravel where females deposit eggs. We get something called red superimposition where essentially fish are kind of fighting for spawning gravel. That plus reduced food availability for the juvenile fish after they hatch, Cross says, are why excessively large parent runs produce small runs of offspring. There are two overlapping subsistence fisheries at Readout. On July 1st, the limit in the state subsistence fishery, by far the more popular, was increased to 25 sockeye per day with a 100 fish annual limit. Effective July 7th, however, the U.S. Forest Service doubled down and raised the federal subsistence limit to 50 fish per day with no annual limit in the lake's freshwater drainage, which extends over the falls to the mean high tide line. And on July 9th, the Department of Fish and Game opened Readout Bay to commercial seining for four days, all in an effort to catch more fish now at Readout Lake so that more can be caught in the future. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. And for anyone heading down to fish at Readout this month, the Forest Service is doing a recapture study. If you happen to catch a sockeye with a clipped adipose fin, that's a little fin between the dorsal fin and the tail, Please give the Sitka Ranger District a call and let them know at 907-747-6671. Thanks for joining me for Midday Magazine. I'm Hannah Floor with KFSK News.